Welcome to Talking Human Rights. I'm Heather Robertson-Gaston. Today we have a slightly shorter episode than our usual, sort of a bite-sized part two of our conversation with our guest, Phyllis Bennis. Phyllis Bennis is an expert on the Middle East. She is an expert on U.S. foreign policy and on U.S. and global militarism. She has written and edited 11 books, including Understanding the Palestinian-Israeli Conflict, a Primer, now in its seventh edition. Phyllis Bennis is also a fellow of the Institute for Policy Studies, where she leads the New Internationalism Project that addresses a number of issues surrounding the Middle East and the United Nations. In our last episode, I asked her to help answer a listener question that came out of a recent series we've been doing featuring Palestinian activist Issa Amro. Issa is currently on trial before an Israeli military court and also before a Palestinian authority court. And we've been doing some work on the show to talk about his cases and to talk about the context surrounding his cases. That means we've been doing a lot of talking about the military occupation of the West Bank where he lives. And the audience question that came out of all of this was, what does it mean when you say that the West Bank is under occupation? Why do you call what is happening there an occupation instead of something else? If you haven't listened to it yet, I highly recommend it. In this episode, though, I want to address another question. And that is just, let's step back and ask, why does all of this matter in the first place? Not just why does the case of Isa Amro matter? But why does Israel-Palestine matter? I think it's such an important question. It's one I have to ask myself every day as I do this work. Why am I doing this? Why do I care about this? And since I've been doing this series on Isa and on Israel-Palestine, I find that I really have to connect with that place of caring every day. For me, that looks like just thinking about what it feels like to walk around Jerusalem, to walk around Hebron and Bethlehem, these places that I really love, that are filled with people who I really love. I think about the families I stayed with, all of the people who let me stay on their couches all over the West Bank and Israel. I think of Israeli and Palestinian activists who have let me follow them around endlessly and to ask them questions endlessly. People like Isa. I think about these incredible Israeli and Palestinian activists who are, I think, truly fighting for the heart and soul of this beautiful place. And I want them to be okay. And I want them to win. So I think about that. And I kind of psych myself up. But for people who haven't spent a lot of time in this region, I think it's normal to think like, geez, this place gets a lot of attention. Why? Why is it always in the news? Why is it always popping up in my feed? And I think it's a great question. I I plan to ask it of everyone I talk to on this subject. So you might see a lot of bonus episodes along these lines. And I'm so glad that I got to ask it of Phyllis Bennis. So I'm just going to drop you into this interview right now. Um, I'm sort of playing the role of someone who is listening to my show, listening to all these episodes on Israel-Palestine and thinking, wait, do I really have to pay attention to this place? Is, is this really the best use of my time? Why should I be spending so much time learning about this faraway place? What does this have to do with me? Shouldn't I be you know, thinking about Black Lives Matter? Shouldn't I be thinking about climate change? These are the, the answer is absolutely. Right? And you shouldn't be spending all your time thinking about Israel-Palestine because <laughs> these are right. But yeah. I think that you could probably speak to how these things are connected just assume a listener 
doesn't feel that connected to this region, um, but they've been asked to learn something about it. How, how does it connect to what happens in the U.S. and around the world? How does it you know, provoke larger militarism? Uh, right. You know, one of the challenges that we face in dealing with the question of Israel and Palestine in U.S. policy is that people constantly come back to us and say, why are you making Israel such a big deal? Why are you singling out Israel? And the answer is, we're not the ones singling out Israel. We want the U.S. to have a normal relationship with Israel, not a, quote, special relationship. The special relationship means that, for example, Israel gets $3.8 billion a year in direct military support to its military. Now, Israel, depending on whether you believe the CIA or the IMF, is either the 23rd or 27th wealthiest country in the world. So the first question, why are we giving it military aid at all? Why are we giving it any aid? It's a rich country. Why are we just sending them money? And why are we sending money to a military that is known, even according to the, to the State Department's own human rights reports every year, to be violating human rights? This is crazy. This is the exception. The U.S. policy is what exceptionalizes Israel. And again, it's not because... If we look at the White House today, in fact, in terms of the, the level of anti-Semitism that we hear coming directly from the White House, it's not because they care about Jewish people. It's because they have a relationship to a strategic ally in the region. And that, the strategic alliance, it's a complicated one. It began in 1967 with the Pentagon. I'm not going to go through that whole history. But the bottom line is, we shouldn't care more about what happens in Israel and Palestine than we do about what happens in Chad or what happens in Cameroon or what happens in any country around the world. We should care about all people. We should be internationalists. We are the strongest and the wealthiest country that has ever existed in history. And we should be concerned about the people of the whole world. We should also be concerned about people in our own country who are gonna face the ravages of climate change. That's a global challenge. Who now face the ravages of COVID and that's a global challenge in which the U.S. is doing the worst job of any country. We have about 4.5% of the population of the world, and we have more than 22% of the cases and of the deaths. And we're the wealthiest country. We should be doing better than everybody else. And in fact, we're doing worse. So the point is that you should care more about what happens to Palestinians or what happens in Israel than anywhere else. It's just, it's a distraction from a lot of other things. Imagine what we could do with that $3.8 billion a year. How many teachers could we hire? How many COVID tests could be created? You know, it's not a good use of our money. It's not a good use of our positioning at the United Nations that we are known to be prepared to, to use the veto in the Security Council to protect Israel every time the rest of the world unanimously with the exception of two or three small island states that are bound by treaty to follow whatever the U.S. says in foreign policy. To criticize Israel, and the U.S. refuses in the Security Council, uses its veto, and in the General Assembly, when it doesn't have a veto, it threatens other countries directly and said, if you don't want us to cut all the aid, the tiny bit of aid we give to you, you won't vote to criticize Israel. The U.S. does that overtly. It's an old story at the, United, at the United Nations. So that's the reason that we need to be paying more attention. There's also the question of the level of violations of international law. There's no other country 
that is carrying out this kind of a military occupation for so long, right? And that is something that we should take very seriously. When we are enabling those violations, we are enabling those human rights violations. That's why, you know, this question about two states or one state, there's been a lot more debate about it lately. Many of us believe that whatever we think about it is kind of irrelevant because a two-state solution is actually no longer possible. There might have been a two-state solution back in 1988 when the Palestinians voted to accept it. But that was based on the idea that it would be the entire West Bank, the entire Gaza Strip, and all of East Jerusalem, the whole Palestinian 22% that was then under Israeli occupation. And the Israelis said, oh, no, no, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about this non-contiguous entity, which will be, you know, imagine again the Swiss cheese. Israeli territory is the cheese. The Palestinian bits of it are the holes that are not connected to each other. It will not have the right to have a military defense. It will not control its own airspace. It will not control its own borders. It's no longer possible. It's no longer possible. But at the end of the day, it's also not our business. You know, I'm a Jewish girl from California. Why do I get to say how many states there should be in this territory that's 7,000 miles away? It's not my business. I don't live there. My family doesn't live there. I've never lived there. The fact that I'm Jewish doesn't give me some special rights, except in the eyes of the Israeli laws that say that Israel is not, Netanyahu said this recently, explicitly, Israel is not the state of all its citizens. Imagine saying it's not for all its citizens. It's for the Jewish people those who are citizens of Israel, and those in the rest of the world. We make you citizens. I don't want to be a citizen there. I don't want to live there. That's not where my home is. My home is in this country. My home is the United States. And the notion that Israel does that with the support and the protection of our government, with our tax money, in our name, without our consent, is an outrage. That's why people should care about it. That's why people should care about it. And do you think that um, militarism in Israel-Palestine, um, all of the, you know, the infrastructure of occupation, the fact that this enormous occupation and conflict exists, does this contribute to militarism in the region? Is it a linchpin that keeps people divided? I think there's no question that Israeli militarism, which is very much tied up with U.S. militarism, which of course has a much longer history. U.S. militarism goes back to the very origins of our country. If we look at how militarism was central to the, the, the two components of U.S. history, the great uh, historian Howard Zinn taught us so clearly about how U.S. history is grounded in the realities and the intersection between slavery, the enslavement of, of Africans who were brought here in chains and genocide against the native people, militarism was what enabled both of those phenomena. It's crucial that Howard also taught us that our history is bound up not only with those two realities, but with the movements that challenged genocide and slavery right from the beginning. That's huge, that's huge. So I think that's very important. I do think that in the region, Israeli military power, particularly its nuclear monopoly, Israel is the only nuclear weapons state in the Middle East. You know, for all that we hear about Iran as a nuclear power, Iran doesn't have a nuclear weapon. It doesn't have the capacity to build a nuclear weapon. And according to all 16 US intelligence agencies, it never even made the decision that it wanted to have a nuclear weapon. 
It does have the ability to create nuclear power because it's the same technology, but you need it on such a, mu a much more massive scale that Iran isn't anywhere close. And yet we never hear an, even an acknowledgement, let alone a criticism from the US of Israel's unacknowledged and illegal nuclear arsenal. Israel has one of the, of the three nuclear arsenals that are known but not legal in the world, the others being India and Pakistan. North Korea is now the, the fourth. There are five acknowledged legal, quote, nuclear powers, the US being one, the others being France, Britain, uh, Russia, and China. But the Non-Proliferation Treaty requires those five countries to move towards full and complete nuclear disarmament, to which any US diplomat that you talk to will laugh in your face. You know, we take it seriously, the US doesn't, nor do the, other five, the others of the five, and we should be clear, none of them do. But the US allows the Israelis to determine its own policy, which is what they call strategic ambiguity. They don't either admit or deny that they have the well-known existing nuclear weapons. That's an enormous threat in the region. It's an environmental threat, it's a political threat, and it's obviously a military and human threat uh, to people in that region. Israel's a very small country. Its nuclear arsenal is not very far from a lot of other countries in the region. So it's, it's a very destabilizing uh, reality. The fact that the US provides Israel with the most up-to-date, uh, the most modern weaponry for its military and pays that $3.8 billion is about 20% of what Israel spends every year on its military. So we're paying for a big chunk of its military prowess. So yes, it does have a direct, uh, a direct connection. We also see it in terms of the sharing of technology. Um, again, the, the US certainly doesn't need Israeli militarism and Israeli racism to teach US soldiers and US police about racism and about militarism. They have enough of their own, thank you very much. But the fact that they collaborate, the fact that US police Police agencies all over the country send their law enforcement officers to Israel for training. They could get the same training here, but by going there, they share the worst practices. They share practices in how to deal with mass demonstrations, for instance, where Israel is dealing with a military occupation of a population that might, uh, that might have the audacity to organize a protest. And they're teaching U.S. police officers how to do that. I don't think that we want our soldiers having that approach. They have enough racism in, built into the policing in this country because US police agencies are rooted in the slave patrols of a century and a half ago. So that's part of how political support for Israel is built. And it's a very dangerous reality. Luckily, there's a great campaign that's been launched by Jewish Voice for Peace called the Deadly Exchange Campaign that's designed specifically to challenge these training uh, exchanges and in a number of cities in Durham, North Carolina, in Northampton, Massachusetts, and other places, there are campaigns underway, some of which have won, including those two, where the city council decides they are no longer going to engage in this kind of international training of their police forces. So I think that's a very important development. What would you say to people in terms of what kind of difference can an American make in, in this space? It's huge. The difference that we are already making is enormous. 
You know, if you look at the changes that have been underway in this country for the last two years, the last five years, the last 20 years, it's incredible. The policy is not yet changing, let's be clear. But the public discourse, the way people talk about Palestinian rights, the way they talk about Israeli occupation, the acknowledgement that there is an occupation is entirely different. And it's because there have been these incredible movements for the last 25 years fighting for Palestinian rights on the basis of human rights and equality. You know, when we say that it's not our business to say how many states there should be, it is our business to say that our government's policy should be based on international law, human rights, and equality for all. Israelis should be safe and equal. Palestinians should be safe and equal. If there's one state, equality within the one state for everybody. If there's two states, equality within both states and between both states. That's not so difficult to understand. So the goal is we've changed that public discourse. You know, you see Palestinian voices on the front page of the newspapers these, these days. That didn't used to happen. I talk to young activists in the Palestinian rights movement and they say, oh my God, the mainstream media is terrible. And they're right. On some level, it is still terrible. But I say, go back and read what it was like 25 years ago. It's night and day. You see the word Nakba in the mainstream press, what the Palestinians call, the word, the word is in English, catastrophe, for what happened to them with the dislocation and dispossession of their land in 1947 and 48 that accompanied the creation of the State of Israel. You see that being talked about. It's a whole different world. The media is different. Education is different. Now the job is to show those members of Congress who still live in a bubble in Washington and still think it's political suicide to criticize Israel, it ain't that way anymore. It's partly because we have some amazing new champions of the issue in Congress, but it's also because the Democratic Party is changing. Support for Israel has become a Republican partisan issue in a way that it never was before. Young people, young Jews are changing massively. When I was a young Jewish kid, there were no choices out there. If you identified as Jewish, you identified with Israel. That's what it was. It wasn't about God, it was about Israel. Now, people have all kinds of choices. There's organizations like If Not Now, Birthright Unplugged, and Jewish Voice for Peace, which has 20,000 members and several hundred thousand supporters online. You know, that's where young Jews are going. You have an organization like J Street that broke the taboo on Capitol Hill. This never existed before. And it's our new opportunity for changing how our country operates so that we no longer are supporting the existing militarism and apartheid and occupation. And instead, we can start supporting international law, human rights, and equality for all. All right. This has been great talking with Phyllis Bennis. I'm so grateful that she's been able to get on the show with us. She's just done so much work in this area. And also more broadly, I thought about widening the scope a bit to talk more about U.S. militarism in particular and more about some of the work she's been doing to raise awareness of just how huge the U.S. military budget is and where that money is spent and the devastating impacts it has around the world and the impacts it has on our climate. But it really feels like that's a different conversation. And in any case, we ran out of time. So what I'm going to do is just link to her work on the subject. There is a lot of it. So if you do go to our website, you will see so much. You will see a piece that she did for Jacobin about cutting the military budget to fund the Green New Deal. You will see also a really fun and important teach-in that she did for Jane Fonda's Fire Drill Fridays, in which she and other guests 
make this really important connection between militarism and climate change, you will see a piece she did called Why Palestinians Are Mourning George Floyd, which shows how issues of racial justice intersect across borders. You'll really see so much, so I hope you'll go to the site and check it out. And until next time, you have been listening to Talking Human Rights. I'm Heather Robertson-Gaston. Our guest has been Phyllis Bennis. You can find the show on the web at www.talkinghumanrights.com.